The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. So we're spending our time looking at the Buddha's teachings on path. We've started in January and just reflecting on the different aspects of the spiritual path. And, you know, the Buddha had his own particular articulation of this path of awakening. And, of course, you could have, anybody could conceive of it different ways, but you'd probably, you know, a wise person, their understanding of path would cover the same territory. And the easy way to begin to reflect on our life as a path of waking up, a path of moving from hellish states, right, where the mind is in a contracted place with fear, with greed, with confusion, moving out of that into more experience of being free of that contraction. That's the path, right? So it really involves a transformation in all aspects of what it means to be a human being. So the grosser aspect is this external world that we relate to other people, for example, situations, interactions, work, family, community. We're in relationship. This is a pretty gross, not gross in a negative sense, but dense part of our life. It's an you know, significant, relevant part of living, all these relationships. And in Buddhism, that is called sila, what sometimes gets translated as ethical conduct. But it's all about the integrity of how we relate, whether the way we relate to others has integrity. It's like grounded or supported by... Um, a wisdom that knows what leads to freedom. Because there obviously there are ways to relate to our family, our work scene, our fr- uh, friends, the world, wider world. There's ways to relate that ends up causing ourselves and others a lot of suffering, obviously. And there are ways to relate that lead to a lot of harmony and ease. So that's one place the path needs to Um, inform us, like how to do this part of life in a way that leads to freedom. And the other that we'll talk about in the weeks ahead is this whole area of how we relate to the activity of the mind or the qualities of the mind. So it's just a, a more subtle aspect of reality. We have our ordinary relationships with other human beings and other living beings and with power and with you know, all those sexual relationships, all the complexity of that grosser. But then we're relating to our own mind all the time and the qualities that are there in the mind. Wholesome qualities, unwholesome qualities, mixed qualities of mind. It's like a garden, you know, and either it's a wild garden that no one's taken care of, no one's bothered to cultivate, or maybe it's a really tight neurotic garden because someone's been way too parental about their mind and what they let in and you know, but in any case, we want to bring wisdom and love 
to this whole area of our mind. And in Buddhism, we call that samadhi, that part of the path that's about paying attention to the mind, mental qualities, tendencies of the mind. How can I relate to that in a way that's liberating? Because we can definitely relate to what's going on in the heart and mind in ways that create health for ourselves and probably for those around us. Like having a lot of self-hatred or having a lot of shame or having a lot of self-doubt or having a lot of inflated sense that I'm so much better than the rest of you. I mean, there's probably close to an infinite number of ways in terms of how we cultivate the kind of heart and mind we're cultivating to cause ourselves and others around us a lot of suffering. Anybody not ended up ended up in a hellish mind state? I mean, we regularly visit difficult mind states. And so part of the path is gaining competence, like, okay, there is a heart and mind. How am I going to relate to that in a way that skillful leads toward release? And how might I be relating to the mind, to the heart, in ways that are entangling, that reinforce hellish, afflictive heart and mind states? We want to be competent at that. And then the most subtle part of the path, right? So it's just going from gross, the grossest, more obvious aspects of being a human being to the most subtle. And in Buddhism, the most subtle, the, the wisdom end of practice or the understanding end of practice or what sometimes we call view, the underlying view, the subtle, not so conscious view through which I relate to my mind, through which I relate to my relationships with others in the wider world, right? There are these mostly unseen frames through which I understand and make up meaning that affects how the mind goes and affects how relationships go. And we want to practice, we want to bring awareness to this area, this um, place of practice we call understanding one's understanding or understanding one's view or the frames and perspectives that basically drive everything. Because in this business of waking up, definitely can't neglect this grosser stuff. But generally speaking, subtle is more significant than gross. For example, somebody could have some very weird underlying views, you know, how they frame experience. And they could spend a lot of time trying to cultivate wholesome relationships. But if their underlying unseen view is God's out to get me, or uh, whatever it might be, like, I'm all alone. This very strong view of being a separate being, a scared, frightened human being who's trying to be good. But that unseen view of being all alone and separate really affects, like, even though I really want to be a skillful partner to my spouse, that unseen view that I'm all like existentially all alone and really afraid, 
might really ultimately ruin or get in the way of having a healthy relationship with my partner. Because I'm so existentially needy, it can't help but leak out in that ordinary relationship or with my friends or even with my cat. You know, it gets neurotic. And I'm not trying to be a bad, you know, I don't know what you say, owner of your cat or master of the cat or friend of the cat. But it gets off because the subtle thing isn't being worked with, wasn't being seen and transformed with awareness. So we need to take responsibility for the full spectrum of our life, from gross to the most subtle. But the general thing is, subtle is more significant. But it's hard to see the subtle. So we often get to know the subtle ways the mind, the heart is framing things by looking at the gross, right? That's where we see, oh, God, I am so afraid. I am so tight. I am so self-centered here. I am so needy. What's that? What is that neediness? You know, I just acted this way with my partner or just said this thing to my partner. What view, what understanding did those words come out of? There was some perspective that led me to say what I said or do what I did there. And that's how we get a little bit of a sense, better sense over time of this whole area of view. And we're going to talk about the middle and the subtle again. So we started in January talking about wisdom, but on a more ordinary level of wisdom. And then we went to sila, this whole area of integrity of how we're relating to others. We'll spend another week or so. And then we'll take up the whole area of how we're relating to our own heart and mind and the activity of the heart and mind for several weeks in March. And then by April, we'll look at the more subtle end of view. What is the underlying frame that's there but goes unseen? Because part of these you know, you could even call it a underlying belief. But it isn't there isn't anybody believing that belief. It's just a habit of the mind to frame experience. You know, so a lot of you who've done some reading know that in Buddhism, in the most subtle sense, in this part of practice where we're looking at view, the view we need to start to notice is that habit, that subtle habit of selfing that every experience we had today, and you could just pick any one experience, any moment of your day where you were just experiencing, and you'll see, if you look at it, even now in hindsight, it always starred, it always had imputed a sense of a me who stood apart or who owned the experience. or But there was always some sense of a somebody who stood apart in a permanent sense. And that view never gets noticed on the one hand or uh, really seen if it lines up actually with reality. Like, What's the supporting evidence? It's just habit. Selfing, self-centeredness, is a pervasive habit. It's so pervasive, it's like a fundamentalist religious belief that we don't question. 
I had this conversation with my mother. I was probably seven, something like that. And, uh, you know, so just kind of getting a sense of the thing. I, I was raised in a, you know, it seemed like a pretty healthy Catholic church. My parents were very involved in the church. <clears throat> they weren't, <coughs> you know, they didn't like read about Catholicism or anything like that. They were just raised in a way that was pretty typical for their generation, like this is the way that it is. And I remember, I don't know how we got to this conversation, but we're just talking about the, there was a, a Lutheran church, you know, which is not uncommon in Minneapolis. I, I grew up in North Minneapolis, you know, just a couple blocks away. And uh, I forget exactly how we got here, but, uh, you know, I said, well, they're probably good people, you know, something like that. But it was, it was a real shock. I mean, not that my mom actually thought they weren't good people, but it was scary, you know, this sort of, it's kind of a, what to her, she probably didn't even know what the word relativism meant, but to her it was like, oh, it's just, you know, Catholicism, Lutheranism. So she said, and she's, you know, saying this to seven, maybe I was eight, you know, I knew you were going to become an atheist. (laughs) (laughs) And she was not happy, you know, and it, I'm not even sure I knew what that meant, but I knew it wasn't good in her mind. And it, and it's like this, sort of unseen thing like this is the way and we have that about selfing too it's like you don't like if i say if you you know bump up against the teachings the buddhist teachings that it's actually what's happening here isn't a me having an experience that's the idea that would come out of that view that unseen view like i'm here at common ground it's wednesday night and i'm having this experience and that goes unquestioned. And so when somebody says, actually, that's just a thought, and that thought is just something coming and going and being known, and there's not any more you can say about it, and there never will be anything more you can say about it. It's like, no, 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 I'm pretty sure this is happening to me, and you're an idiot. I mean, there's there's definitely tends to be pushback against any sort of suggestion that self-centeredness isn't what it appears to be. Like the me here having this life experience moment by moment isn't what it appears to be. Because more than anything, selfing is defined by this absolute arrogance that it's true. Just like fundamentalism, whatever it is, that's the primary characteristic. That's why it's not so different whether somebody's a fundamentalist atheist or fundamentalist Catholic or fundamentalist Buddhist or whatever it might be, the characteristic, the defining characteristic is like uh, there's no um, break in the certainty. It's like, no, no, no. I mean, you, you can think what you want and you're wrong. This is what's true. And so we'll, ta- we'll get to that where we start to look at how to bring awareness, how to begin to see that fundamentalism in the mind, how to make space around it. Because it's not like thinking that I have to go in and fix the idiot who thinks their self, right? It's, it's just more of the same. 
or wanting to become the self who's not confused by self. It's just more of the same. So the way that this all, all of this gets fixed, right? how we walk the path, is we bring awareness to our relationships. We don't try to fix them. The fixing comes from seeing them without judgment, how I'm relating to my spouse, how I'm relating to my cat, how I'm relating to the wider communities that I'm part of, that breath and the subtlety, you know, how the sort of setting up the mind, comprehending the way it is, not comprehending through thinking, but just through that continuity of awareness. Same with the purification of the mind. So the purification of our relationships, or the, you could say, if you don't like that word, for us in English, purification sounds like uh, tight and parental. You better get your act together and purify your relationships and purify your mind and purify your view. But it's more we're taking refuge in that curious, open, kind presence. So when this is what's up for us, the kind of grossness of how we're relating, like it is most of each day, this is what's going to get our attention, that we're in relationship to traffic or we're in relationship to the clerk at the store or we're in relationship to someone at work or whatever it might be, then we're bringing that balance, non-judging, kind and wise, and preferably continuous awareness to that. And that's what purifies it. And we're aware of the mind. When the mind's more uh, subtle, we can actually be aware of the qualities that are coming and going in the mind, the mood and the attitude and the way the mind's relating to its own experience and whether that's helpful or not. So we're seeing what's skillful, helpful, what's not skillful, not helpful. We're doing that in terms of the mind. And eventually, when there's enough stability of awareness, enough subtlety, we're doing that with view, whether it's in a formal set or even in moments during the day when the mind is balanced enough and we'll see that underlying view. We'll see in living color, selfing, you know, how the mind is taking something personally. But we'll see it with space, not from the point of view of self. We'll see that selfing, that self-centeredness arising as a phenomena right there in the moment as an option, like not as the truth, but just an expression of habit, which means it doesn't have to be that habit. It could be another habit, right? And see, that's why it's so purifying when we see the grossness of our reactivity in real time in a relationship or moments of real skill and kindness or whatever might manifest. We're not seeing it in terms of that's me. We're seeing it in terms of that's being known. So there's space around it. And like if I'm noticing that I'm relating what appears to be skillfully or relating in what appears to be unskillfully, the space around it allows me to see that it could be another way. So if I'm noticing relating skillfully, it's <clears throat> the, when I mentioned before, like that wise comprehension, it knows that it's skillful. That means it knows that it could be unskillful. But this is skillful. Or this is unskillful, but it could be skillful. That's what the purification is, is the mind knows the difference between what's wholesome and unwholesome on the level of how we're relating in the real world, 
how the mind is operating within its own sort of space, you know, whether the mind is relating, thinking, the qualities that are there, are they helpful or they're unhelpful, and on the most subtle level of view. But that whether it's skillful or unskillful isn't something that we do in a sense as a self. The comprehension of what's helpful, not helpful, skillful, not skillful, wholesome, not wholesome, arises naturally when there's the stability of present moment awareness. It's not just this, as we might imagine, this parental energy sort of observing me interacting with the cat or observing my mood, you know, or my attitude or what qualities are there in the mind or observing the subtle view. It's not judgmental. The seeing the skillfulness or unskillfulness, which is what purifies our action in the world, purifies the mind, purifies the view. The purification isn't a self-improvement project. And that should be a real relief because that will be teasing out for a long time where we think spiritual life is a self-improvement project. And we have some kind of, it's like a cult of, of perfection. And you can look at Buddhism that way. You can look at basic New Age stuff that way. Any sort of religious system, there is going to be this cultish idea of perfection. And then we start assessing each other according to whatever you know, hierarchical system. Oh, you're gooder than me, you know, or you're better, <laughs> who's holy, who's not holy, who's going to heaven, who's not going to heaven, who's going to burn in hell for a long time. How long? You know, you're never getting out of hell. You know, we have these different, because that's how our mind thinks in these hierarchical scales. And instead, you know, of sort of seeing things in that way, we realize the path isn't about being a somebody going from A to Z. The path is understanding the power of a balanced present moment awareness. And when in the moment what's really up for us is something gross, like I'm arguing with somebody or we're trying to figure something out with another human being, then I'm bringing that balanced and non-judging awareness there and that naturally reveals whether the way the mind, the heart, and body is showing up is skillful or not. Whether I'm planting seeds of suffering for myself and others or planting seeds of release for myself and others. And when what's showing up, we're in a more quiet moment and the mind is curious about the mind itself and the qualities that are there and the mood and the attitude that's there and whether it's a helpful attitude that's present in the mind and heart or an unhelpful attitude, then we bring that continuity of non-judging present moment awareness to the qualities of the mind itself. And then that stability of awareness will reveal, like, is this a relatively skillful mind in terms of the qualities that are present right now? Helpful mind in the direction of freedom and love and wisdom? Or is this a mind that's in the direction of more hellish states, afflicted mind states? Isn't it true that you can, to some degree at times, assess, oh, this mind is fit to be tied. 
You know, we say things like that. We realize, oh, this mind is totally fried, not good for anyone. It's like we know that. Like, I'm not going out tonight because I'm just going to get myself in trouble. We're putting you in quarantine. You know, you're going to go to bed or you're going to, you know, take a bath. But you're just, you know, the qualities that have been triggered that are active in your mind are not so wholesome. So I'm going to remove you from situations that might further activate or get yourself in trouble when those qualities are activated. Right? When I'm really uh, irritated and angry, it's really good to stay away from things that trigger anger because the mind's already in the mode of looking for things to be angry at. Right? So if we can, we take care of ourselves so that we can observe, oh yeah, this is what's going on in the mind and I'm going to take care of you. That's called wisdom. Like what feeds the fire of anger, what begins to starve the fire of anger. Like how do I stop throwing fuel? How do I stop feeding that mental quality of anger? That's what's up. Or maybe self-hatred is up for you. Okay, how do I stop feeding that? What can I do? How can I feed something that's wholesome, like forgiveness. And same thing with this. So that's so interesting how the path isn't something you or I have to do, but it still has to happen. And this is what I tried to point to in the guided meditation tonight about the refuge what do we turn to? And in Buddhist practice, like the real insight of the Buddha, one is freedom, real freedom, in this messy and imperfect and unjust world. There is, as he says in one of the talks, this unshakable and unconditioned release of the heart, the unburdening of the heart even with birth and death, even with injustice, even with suffering, even with physical pain, right? This world that includes all of that stuff, as well as joy and beauty and goodness. It's a real mix, the world. That the heart can be completely unburdened in the wild swirl of life for us human beings. So that was one insight. And then the other insight is this path. And the path isn't about fixing or striving for perfection. Because the Buddha's insight was that this is all nature and not, it doesn't refer back or include a permanent self, then the path has to be a natural process. Not somebody doing something and then becoming somebody because they did it. And so the natural process is to, because we have this capacity to be reflectively, mindfully aware, right? That changes everything. Because if we put all of our so-called personal efforts into being present, then all of a sudden this gross aspect of our life we call sila, moral conduct, ethical conduct, living with integrity, It's transformed, not so much because I want to transform my relationships with others, 
but because I can't help but notice what's skillful and unskillful because I have mindful awareness more and more. And when I'm mindfully aware and I see myself acting in an irritated way towards my spouse, my heart, the sensitive heart, feels what that feels like to be mean. And I'm changed. Just because I'm sensitive, I'm awake, I'm aware. So if I'm skillful and I see how useful, how helpful that is, that leaves an impression. That changes me. So every moment that there's some degree of balanced mindful awareness in this grosser aspect of life we call our relationships, then we're going to be learning. That stability of present moment awareness, the continuity of present moment awareness, naturally, without a self-involved, leads to learning. Because who I am right now, this mind that's arising right now, is the cumulative, you know, the result of the cumulative previous moments of this mind stream. All the impressions previously leads to this mind right here and now, right? So if the previous moments included that balanced present moment awareness that could comprehend, oh, this is relatively skillful or this is relatively unhelpful, each of those moments left an impression. This moment of the mind-heart is that, you know, coming out of all of those impressions that have been laid down. Is that making sense? So we bring awareness to the most subtle, the medium subtle, the most gross parts of our life. And walking the path is all about valuing the continuity and stability of present moment awareness. That's it. We don't even need to know what the Buddha said more than it's r- that the most valuable thing in life, no matter the particular location, like cultural location, wealthy, not so wealthy, privileged, not so privileged, oppressed, not oppressed, war zone, more orderly, peaceful location. So no matter what kind of life or circumstances we have, don't believe this, check it out. What's actually a refuge is to whatever degree is possible bring a stability and continuity of present moment awareness. Because it's that stability of awareness that allows the mind to discern what's skillful and unskillful at all levels, subtle to gross in our life. And will we will naturally be changed or transformed or we could say the entirety of our life will be purified unhelpful ways of being, of relating, of thinking, of understanding will be purified just because of the stability of awareness. And that's really inspiring that it's so simple. I'm not saying it's easy. No one who's done this for a while, I'm sure many of you would agree, cultivating the continuity of present moment awareness is quite Literally, I think fair to say, the hardest thing 
to do because our society, our culture, and just our habits keep the mind externally oriented, one, and capitalism and you know the economy is driven by distractions. We're, I mean, most of the economy is based on selling things that are distractions. And so we don't, we're not given a lot of um, encouragement to cultivate the stability of present moment awareness. The only thing that encourages us is we at some point, people who show up at a place like this especially, realize I'm a suffering human being. <laughs> you know, <laughs> my mind and heart feel, feels quite burdened. I'm pretty tight. And we try everything. You know, that the marketers sell us this self help thing, drink, drugs, rock and roll, sex, you know, media, obsessing about things, gossiping. We try everything, sleeping, but we can't run away from the stress. So then we're willing to get out of the box and we're lucky if we're lucky we stumble upon some wise teachings like from someone like the Buddha who's basically saying, yeah, freedom is actually available, unshakable, real, lasting happiness is available, even with really difficult circumstances, even if you have difficult circumstances. You will feel pain as a human being. You will feel physical pain. You will feel emotional pain, like the pain of loss. But you don't have to have a problem with that, that ordinary and un- unavoidable pain that comes with human existence. There can be real freedom, unconditional release, even when you experience the pain of loss or the pain of death. Like maybe there's a lot of pain in your dying process, physical pain, pain of loss, of letting go, of saying goodbye. But the mind, the heart, can be unburdened. Oh yeah, it feels like this. And I'm sure we've all tasted this a little bit where the heart really hurt, but it felt good to hurt. Like when you're saying goodbye to somebody you really love, it hurts. But you're totally okay, it's the right thing. You're not resisting. And the hurt is understood in a different way. Now, I know there's hurt that we don't understand it in a good way, right? We really don't want this to happen. But there are other times, if you think about it, you might bring to mind sometimes when you were a feeling human being. You're totally okay feeling what you're feeling. It might have been a very strong or intense feeling. If somebody asked you how it felt, you would say, it hurts, but there was a lot of freedom even though the heart had that intense, intensely unpleasant feeling. The heart-mind wasn't burdened by being a feeling human being. And that's the liberation the Buddha promises. And it doesn't require that we have a different life. It requires we purify how the mind, how the heart is relating to the full array of life, gross, medium, subtle. We have to purify it. And like I said at the beginning of the talk, it's mostly about the subtle. We have to purify our view. 
But it's really hard, like I said, to purify how you're relating to your cat and dog and friend and partner if you don't purify your view. And it's really hard to purify your mind if you don't purify your view. Like if you go after, okay, I'm going to go on a self-improvement project and, and transform my attitudes of mind, then you're going to end up using repression. Like, don't, don't think that, Mark. And see how that works. It doesn't work. What really helps you transform your mind is when you can look at your mind, the activity of the mind, in this non-personal way. See, this is the chicken and egg in Buddhist path. You need wisdom to walk the path in order to get wisdom. Right? That's the chicken and egg phenomenon. But there's no way around it. So that's why when we started talking about path, we started with wisdom. We always start with the wisdom the mind has. Sure, I'd like more wisdom when I start my path, but we don't. We have the wisdom that we have, and the, and that initial wisdom is just, as those of you who were in the talks in January, or several weeks, I talked about the basic wisdom that arises when we don't have too much wisdom, but enough to become a seeker. The wisdom is, it matters. I don't know much, I don't know what life is really about or how to be skillful, but I know how I'm showing up right now, who I am right now, it matters. Like the attitude, it doesn't matter, I know that's wrong. I know that that attitude, that it doesn't matter, is not going to help me or anybody. So even though I don't know how it matters, I start paying attention. You see, so the attitude that it matters gets us on the path. Because even though we don't have a clue, we're able to start paying attention in this balanced way. Because we know it matters, or at least we sense that it matters how I'm showing up in each moment. Right? So there's some intuition that there are ways that, that I show up that cause myself harm, and there's ways that I show up that set emotion ease. I know it matters, so I'm going to start paying attention. I'm going to start listening. I'm going to start learning from my own life. And that just sets us in the motion of this path. So earlier in the week, if you're interested, I gave two talks on Sunday, Sunday morning and Sunday evening, on wise speech, where the Buddha talks about this very impactful place in our practice. So you can go back and listen to those talks. They go online. And we'll come back and I'll talk more about it next week. But just to realize that with speech, um, we, we use three qualities that sort of relate in the sense of more gross, more kind of mi- middle, and more subtle. So the gross way we relate to speech is when we're starting to talk in a way that we know seems like, oh, this is making things worse, we have that gross but totally important power of restraint. You know, it's like, stop talking. And hopefully you've had moments where you realize, you know what, I can't have this conversation right now. I don't think I have the capacity to be skillful in this conversation. So with your permission, or without it, 
I'm going to leave. But we'll have to come back, right, because we haven't taken care of our business. But I'm really not in a place to have a good conversation with you about what we need to talk about. Or any number of ways that we know when something, like why would we assume that the first impulse I have to say something would be a useful thing to say? It might not be the second or third or even the 20th impulse. It may be until the 21st impulse before the inclination that arises in the mind and heart is like, oh yeah, that, that seems like a useful thing to say right now. So we need that capacity, call it a wholesome pause, a very wise capacity to pause. And it really comes from the humility that all of these um, impulses or tendencies that are there in my heart and mind, they're not personal. And some might be really skillful and some might be really unskillful. But in a sense, wisdom's job is to feel all the different impulses or tendencies until it sees or feels or intuits, well, this seems skillful. So that's one level of why speech is this whole area of developing the power of pausing or restraining ourselves. When in doubt, don't say anything. When the, the sort of initial intuitive sense is, this isn't an improvement on silence, then we have that power, that moral power to refrain from speaking until there's an impulse that in that moment of that tendency to want to say something, the taste, the sense is, oh yeah, that passes the test. That tastes like it might actually be a helpful thing to say. And even then we say it, we, we continue to be aware, like did that initial Im, uh, in, intuition, does it still seem like it's a skillful thing to have said, having just said it? And even a few moments later, what's the aftertaste? Did that thing I said a few seconds back? Oh, no. Okay. Learn from that. So we're learning before, during, and after, right? We're, that's what the continuity of present moment awareness allows for. And we can be aspired, inspired in a positive way where, you know, from observing other people and their, the kind of words the ways they relate, right? So there's all kinds of ways, but that first and essential skill in terms of using wise speech is to be able to stay quiet so that we're feeling like all impulses of what we could say. It's like different drafts. It's so nice. I noticed it in a meeting. We had a meeting, an important meeting, one of the board committees tonight some really important long-term planning. And, uh, <clears throat> and it, you know, I just it's so great to be able to feel four, five, six different iterations of what should be said. It's one of the great advantages of letting other people speak is it's like being present with that. Then when you finally do say what you need to say, it will be such so much more useful because it's been informed by the people who spoke before you and by your own reflections. And the mind is so quick in that way. 
we can go from, I mean, to be blunt, being a real idiot to being a, a moment of being a really wise person in terms of how we're showing up and speaking in just a matter of 10 seconds. But it won't happen if we're in the habit that the first thing that comes to mind, well, that's me thinking that, so it's got to be right. I mean, we don't say that out loud in our mind, but that's the basic movement of somebody with an untrained mind that the first thought that comes to mind is me, so how could I be wrong? (laughs) There's no humility. You know, we just presume that. And we even, sometimes we even say that you'll either catch yourself or hear someone else saying that. It's like, uh, hey, I'm thinking this, so I've got, I'm going to, I'm just going to say it. But no, just because we're thinking it doesn't mean we have to say it. And we see being acted out. I mean, in big time these days, you know, people who just, that's who they are. If they think it, they say it. And it really, you know, it makes this kind of a world. So I'll leave it here. We have about 10 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from people, just generally your own reflections about PATH, but also specifically about why speech, which we'll be talking about for another week or so. Remember to point the mic close to your mouth like this so we can all hear you. Anybody want to begin? What comes to mind about PATH, about the relevance of present moment awareness and finding your way? toward more skill and release in life. Any questions about what I've said? Hi, I'm Tony. Um, I was at the practice period this weekend. and uh, At Prairie Farm. At Prairie Farm. And so I had uh, four days of experience of not speaking unless absolutely necessary and uh i've found that over the past few days of reintegrating into normal life my i've been pausing a lot (laughs) um (laughs) it's almost difficult to speak um uh Like that, <laughs> yeah. I I don't. Um, I'll I'll just pause for like thirty seconds at a time, which is something I do actually uh, in in normal conversation. But like, um, for long longer periods than normal, I'll I'll just go without speaking to try to formulate what to say. So it's really had an impact. Yeah. And because mindfulness does two things. I mean, just developing some momentum in practice, it will really heighten the insight that it matters. And not in a neurotic sense, but like, I don't want to plant seeds of stress for myself or others. So the mind will appropriately become more cautious and there will be more of those pregnant pauses. But the other thing developing some momentum in your practice, you'll start to feel more alive and more sensitive and more energy, and you can kind of get swept away by that too. So you'll see, like if you're around people who are doing a lot of practice, both of those extremes where they might seem a little, it may feel socially awkward that there's some real pauses, 
in you know kind of normal social settings. It's also interesting when people interrupt me, <laughs> um, but I don't mind really uh, because even if I was trying to think of what to say, I'd just go back to listening to what they're saying. Yeah, but it's true that one of the sort of things we discover is that being somewhat mindful and calm really irritates people who aren't mindful and calm. It's true. There's there's some real truth to that. And just like Tony said, it's a great gift to not be confused by anybody's irritation. You know, so you're more chilled out. And by the way, this place of being chilled out where it, you could actually notice it, that's a middle place in practice. I don't think we would notice that if the Buddha were around or an awakened person, but it's kind of a practice place where we're still kind of getting on the path is we have a sort of mindfulness affect, but it goes away. Yeah, it. I feel like I'm kind of like coming down from the retreat. <laughs> you seem fine to me. <laughs> Thanks for getting us going. And we have time for at least one more comment or question. Yeah, behind you. Hello. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about speech today, actually. And one thing I've noticed is that I don't even think it's necessary. Like true speech, I feel like where it's coming from something that's like articulating your own like being or your own self, I, I feel like that doesn't even necessarily need to be specifically words. It could even be like just like eye contact with someone or like a certain facial expression. And I feel like sometimes I notice myself just going in circles with words, trying to fill in like space um, in a conversation. Yeah. And it's so, I mean, that itself is so impactful, right? That, that already demonstrates there's some stability of awareness and, and we can tell by how you talked about it that that left, that moment or those moments left an impression where you caught yourself filling in space. And that changed you. You're a different human being having, ha I'm sure you had it more than once, but you know, we become a different mind. The mind becomes different or transformed by catching moments where the mind is just filling in space because it's a little bit like maybe happened when People interrupted Tony, right, because they, you know, were more chilled out and that irritated some. So they, they got felt subtly threatened by the quiet. So they their mind filled in the space, started talking about stuff. And uh, but to see that it's a kind of subtle aggressiveness that we would never call aggression. Right. But it is that like controlling and it we but what's underneath it is fear. And this is the great thing about the stability of present moment awareness. It has that flavor of fearlessness. We have to cultivate the fearlessness of just seeing things, feeling things as they are. And it's really powerful. It's one last example of this is like in arguments with my wife, when the co founder of Common Ground, one of our important teachers here when we can get her, but um, you know that that place of uh, you know where you're 
part of the mind is really invested in being right and you know knocking down the other person's points and and just to see that it isn't like to see that acting itself out that movement the impulses some of them actually getting acted out some of it just happening in the mind but the mind is refraining from expressing it but there's no you know th- we're not looking we're not trying to fix it we're just observing it and uh and and basically being uh, unafraid like sometimes it's really wild like I'm not judging myself for the negative thoughts I might have about this person who I love. Right? I'm the wisdom in the mind is actually like, wow, lots of heat, lots of anger, lots of but not afraid of it. And that's a real step, like the the not repressing or pretending that things aren't the way they are, the relationship gets healthier. But we can talk more about that next week, and it would be nice to hear more examples from your own lives. Just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time to take maybe one or two breaths. to tune in to this aspiration to be a human being in a messy world with a conditioned mind and heart, fragile body. Just to aspire to live in a way that's free from fear, free from anxiety, free from heaviness of the heart. And this way, this path, it's all about getting close and open, being sensitive and learning from that. So may this be our way. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.